It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Pumped hydro. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show. We're coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au and 3cr.org.au. You can also follow us on Twitter at bzetechshow. My name is Kay Winnigal and I'm joined today by my co-hosts Natalie Bucknell and Michael Steindl. Hi Kay, hi listeners. G'day everyone. Today we're going to be bringing you information about an interesting new concept for renewable power and storage systems for commercial and residential buildings. The person we'll be speaking to is Roger Davies, who is the CEO of Fluid Solar, a South Australian business developing and implementing technologies for renewable energy and low-impact housing and office construction. He was previously an associate professor lecturing at Sydney University. Hi, Roger. Welcome to the show. Oh, okay. and, yeah, thanks for your time today. It's a pleasure to be with you. Roger, can you tell us a bit about yourself and how you got started and with starting Fluid Solar? It's a funny story, Kay. I, um, I uh, still see patients and uh, do pain management procedures and um, there's a, a very high demand for treating all sorts of uh, conditions around the body and the musculoskeletal system. And uh, for about eight years, I was travelling to Orange each week in New South Wales to uh, do these sorts of um, interventional radiology procedures that I was living in Adelaide at the time. After a little while, I uh, decided that travelling commercial was was a a long and difficult process every week, and I I learnt to fly a plane, and I got a little plane that I could fly myself direct from Adelaide to Orange. It, uh, it saved me uh, many hours of uh, travel time. It's about three hours and 12 minutes direct from Parafield in Adelaide to Orange. And um, once you've taken off and got yourself organised, there's not much to do but change the fuel tank each hour and think. And uh, there I was flying back and forth to Orange in my little plane using less fuel than it takes to drive a, a Ford motor vehicle across the Hay Plain. And it, it got me thinking about fuel efficiency and fuel economy and how we could improve fuel economy in cars. And that then led me to looking at uh, ways to improve heat engines generally. And then eventually uh, I built a turbine that uses low-grade heat to make electricity. That led me to trying to get extra heat from the sun. And so I improved uh, the way that we collect solar thermal power, so that's hot water that we can collect on the roof and store. And uh, and that then finally led me to a solution which allowed me to, to uh, collect energy from the roof uh, store it very cheaply in, in hot water tanks and then use that energy to heat and cool buildings. So you've described a number of different processes and I presume they're all incorporated in the company called Fluid Solar, are they? They are indeed and um, it, it, it became uh, really clear to me as we worked on the project that we needed a turnkey solution for consumers so that we could do the whole process end-to-end, collect the energy, store the energy and then deliver it to to their homes or their offices or any any occupied space. 
And, uh, and at the end of that process, it was pretty clear that the quality of the building, the insulation, the draft proofing of the building were critical components. And, uh, and that led us to start manufacturing small uh, modular homes that can be built in a factory and assembled anywhere, rural, remote, even overseas. So, Roger, you have a building in South Australia that's been disconnected from the grid and uses solar thermal, solar PV and wind turbines. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, that's exactly correct. We started the building about three years ago and it was a proof of concept. Um, Naturally, there's scepticism when you introduce a completely new way of doing things. It was pretty clear to me that we would have to build at least one to showcase it, but also to to, uh, prove to all the doubters that it was feasible. Um, The building is about three uh, stories of occupied levels, 3,000 square metres, so it's quite a a sizeable mid-sized office. And almost at the end of the building process, we had a grid failure in South Australia and there was a complete uh, state shutdown. And that led me to look again at the mathematics and I realised that we had enough power on the roof with using that combination of the solar thermal hot water and the solar PV, which is a conventional panel. Uh, and if I put those two power sources together and stored electricity to use for lights and fans and computers, that we would indeed be able to operate completely independent of the grid. It took us several months then to configure the, the building rooftop to do that, and we were delighted to go all the way through last summer, uh, in essence, able to operate without the grid. We um, turned the grid off in April, and then we've gone right through an Adelaide winter um, surviving on the, the heat that we've collected from the roof to heat the building in the wintertime. So it's been a, a fabulous project, and I'm delighted to say that it works. It sounds really impressive, um, and we will want to talk more about that. But um, solar fluid it seems to emphasise um, solar thermal energy a lot. Um, I, I think people often get confused about solar PV and solar thermal. Can you tell us what that encompasses? Um, with the- sure. The... Um, the um, the underlying problem that faces uh, all occupied buildings is that the energy conversion on the rooftop of a PV panel is in the order of 9 or 11% perhaps. Um, oh, and you're in the past a bit there. That's, they're 18% or something now, typically. Well, it depends on, depends on the price. So you can certainly buy an 18% efficient panel, but it might be double the cost of a 10% efficient panel. So you're in that sense trying to compete with a, a fixed cost of grid-fired electrical services. And if I introduce a solution which is more expensive than the grid, it's much more difficult to persuade people to adopt that new technology. If we can do something that's cheaper than the grid, there's obviously a commercial imperative to at least look at that solution. So does that mean that the solar panels you've got on your rooftop are 10% efficient? Is that what you're saying? That's right. They're just a typical 260-watt panel, which is about 1.8 by 1.2 metres or a little bit over that. Um, and, th- and so that efficiency is the uh, typical uh, panel efficiency that you would get from any solar shop in Australia at the moment. But if I can finish your answer, even at 18%, the amount of energy that can be collected off the roof is still not enough to drive the air conditioning system through the summertime. And the battery pack size that you need to do that uh, air conditioning in the summer is relatively massive. Mm-hmm. So that combination of not quite enough energy or, or falling short by a substantial margin, in fact. And the and cost of storing it. Very, and the cost of storing it together make that process still commercially uh, completely unviable. Um, in comparison to that, collecting solar thermal energy is around 50% efficient. So off the rooftop, we get more energy from the front third, which is the solar thermal, than the rear two-thirds, which is the standard BB panel. Um, they're, you know, they're a good quality uh, commercially available panel. 
It means that I can store roughly 500 kilowatt hours of thermal energy in the plant room, and I'm storing only 100 kilowatt hours of usable electrical power in the plant room. So the thermal storage is about five times the electrical storage, and the cost of that thermal storage is about a tenth of the cost of batteries. Assuming, so dramatically you, can, yeah, assuming you can easily and sensibly convert that to high-grade energy like electrical that a lot of our appliances and, need. And that's a really good question, and it's a fantastic consideration. In an occupied building, around two-thirds of the energy, 60 to 70% of the energy, goes into heating and cooling the building itself and heating domestic hot water if it's a resident. So if we can meet that thermal demand with thermal energy and reserve our electrical energy for, as you say, the high-quality appliances, so that's fans, lights and computers, it turns out that you can get enough PV on the roof to run those devices so long as you're not doing the heavy lifting of the air conditioning and the domestic hot water. And that's where I decided that we would need to be able to complete that loop and provide a thermally-powered air conditioning system, so that's what we went ahead and did. So there are apparently different sorts of thermal collectors, low, medium and high temperature ones. Can you give us a breakdown on that and how they work? Yes, I can. And that's a really good question as well. You've got great questions lined up for me. (laughs) The difficulty that solar thermal faces is the hotter you make your collector, in other words, the more sun you concentrate into a smaller area, the higher the temperature of the collector, the re-radiant and reconductive losses go up massively as the difference Mm -hmm. between your collector and ambient increases. So there's a, there's a real break-even point where if you go beyond that, you need massive areas to make very hot uh, solar thermal collectors. Um, you need very good um, materials, so you need great materials technology so that the part that you're heating doesn't melt and you've, you've got a massive inefficiency because the amount of net energy you can extract at high temperatures is, in a proportionate sense, very low. Um, in contrast to that, if you have temperature which is too low, it's simply not usable. So um, uh, heat at 40 degrees, for example, is not hot enough to, re- to run a shower. So mm. it's n- not valuable for domestic hot water. So what we chose was a middle path where we double or triple the amount of energy arriving on the solar collector so that we can always get that collector to a useful temperature. But we then operate that collector uh, usually under, uh, under 100 degrees centigrade, so under boiling point, And we collect the water as hot but not boiling water because that's the cheapest way to store it by a substantial margin and also the safest way to store it. So as soon as you've got boiling hot water, if you have a leak, it becomes a steam, you know, a, a massive sort of steam expansion. Uh, water expands around um, 1,600 times as it converts from water to steam, so it's, it's almost like a little bomb. So storing water under 100 degrees is the safest. Um, collecting water at under 100 degrees is, is also relatively very efficient with very modest re-radiation losses, and... So long as it's usefully hot, that's really all you need to drive a thermal system. And so that was our challenge. We've developed a, an air conditioning plant that runs on water about 60 degrees centigrade, which means I can easily store that water and, and air condition all through the night and all through the next day if I need to without running out of energy. So, Roger, you mentioned that you were totally self-sufficient over winter, um, but I could, would imagine that in South Australia the summer conditions are quite extreme. How well would the air conditioning perform then? Would would you be able to stay uh, self-sufficient so, during that? Yep. Another really good question. So um, the latent uh, heat of water is very high. One gram of water requires around 2,200 joules of energy to evaporate it from water to vapour form. And we use that, that very large latent energy of water and evaporate water in a, in a very uh, simple water 
evaporator, so it's very much like a rooftop evaporative air conditioning system. But instead of trying to cool the air coming out of that system, we cool the water passing through it. And so that water cooling process is available for most hours of the year, even in Adelaide. And what we're driving into is the wet bulb temperature of the water. So Adelaide has fairly dry summers, and most of the time we can continue to evaporate usefully into that hot but dry air, so long as the temperature of water that we need to cool the building is not terribly low. And so one of the components of the building uh, design process was to design very large surface areas, meaning that we only need small differences in water temperature in order to extract the heat from inside the building. So we can typically keep the building cold with water at 19 degrees, and that will keep the building at about 23 to 24 degrees centigrade internally, which is still a very comfortable temperature in the summer. We were able to run that uh, system last summer and demonstrate that even in the hottest days, we were getting useful cooling. One of the things that flows from storing energy means that you can cool, for example, at night when the wet bulb temperature is lower, store that energy quite easily and use that cool water the next day to keep the building cold. We decided that we would use all of the evaporative water as rainwater so that we're not drawing any water from another source. And again, that's a, a sustainability question. That water that we store in tanks under the building, which formed part of the foundation, so it was a, a very modest cost to store that water by planning the tanks effectively to be part of the foundation system. Um, that water gives us uh, at least two weeks of continuous cooling in a really hot February uh, Adelaide summer without resorting to evaporation at all. So we've got a massive store of cold under the building and that uh, allows us to really guarantee performance right through the summer. So, Roger, what does that look like physically inside the building, that, that cooling system? So we integrated the cooling into uh, pipes which run through the uh, concrete slab of the, of the floor above and the ceiling below, and that gently radiates warm temperature. It's about 24 degrees in the winter to keep the building warm, and it radiates gentle coolness right through the building in the summer. So you walk in, and it's a little bit like walking into a, an old stone building when it first gets hot outside, the building feels very cool inside because it hasn't yet heated up. And so by gently extracting the heat that enters the concrete slab with these modest temperature differences, we're able to give the impression of, of cool, pleasant environment inside without having an air-conditioned system blowing cold air into the building. Sounds lovely. <laughs> I'm, I'm very keen to get... Sorry, I was going to say, from an ambience point of view, it's a delightful sensation to walk into the building and not have draft, not have uncomfortably cold air blowing in one moment and then a hot spot somewhere else. The building is very uniform and very pleasant internally. I'm looking forward to, and, and I'm sure our listeners are getting back to how you generate electricity and steam from less than boiling water. But just before we go there, I wanted to finish off this discussion on the thermal collectors and, and what you've just raised on the tanks. Um, so on the thermal collectors, you've commented just in passing that you uh, greatly increased the amount of radiation on them and we haven't discussed yet, but you also say um, elsewhere that you managed to do effectively solid tracking without any moving parts. Can you tell us how you increase that radiation and do that solar tracking without moving parts? Yeah, that was an insight that I had on a Saturday night. I was standing with a friend having a beer and a coaster was in front of me. I had been thinking for some months as to how I could possibly improve the performance of the solar evacuated tubes. We had initially expected the tubes to perform according to the manufacturer's specification and they work well in the summer, but in the winter, the, uh, the tubes simply weren't reaching a, a desirable temperature. We'd import 
caught a, a variety of different tubes from different manufacturers thinking that perhaps it was a, a manufacturer issue and I concluded in the end that it was simply a matter of there wasn't enough sun falling on the on the evacuated tube surface but to get hot enough to be useful. So we looked at various tracking systems and in general terms, as soon as you are trying to track the sun which is moving, you have to follow it or that's the conventional wisdom, you have to somehow follow and point towards the sun in order to gain the maximum amount of energy. And it occurred to me uh, with my beer coaster in front of me that I could draw a path um, to the undersurface of a collector as well as to the top surface and we could therefore increase the amount of solar radiation hitting the evacuated tube. So if you imagine any tube, obviously, or any, any flat collector has a top and a bottom surface, usually the top surface is collecting heat from the sun and the bottom surface is just a losing surface where you re-radiate. Or, or reflecting surface or internally. Yes, indeed. There are mechanisms to try and heat within a solar thermal collector, and that's the, the greenhouse effect, if you like, of a glass surface, for example, allows the higher frequency infrared radiation into the collector but prevents the lower infrared frequencies from escaping, and that's why a glass room gets hot, for example, when mm. the sun is shining on it. Um, so even with that, uh, even with limiting the re-radiation, the undersurface, if it's not being uh, irradiated by sun is always a losing surface. It's always simply radiating some losses out back to the environment. So an evacuated tube is, is uh, obviously a, a hundred and, sorry, 360 degree circle with the surface available at any point to collect incoming radiation. And so by geometry, it's possible to design a, a mirror system or in fact just a reflecting painted metal surface underneath the collector positioned at a distance at an angle such that the path has a second so the sun has a second path to the undersurface of the collector and by uh, doing some careful geometry and uh, iterative calculations we were able to derive uh, some specific angles that uh, allowed us a path from the sun reflecting off the undersurface and up to the tubes in the morning and without moving either the tubes or the reflector getting a second path in the afternoon from the sun off the reflector and to the undersurface of the tube. So effectively all day there's a, there's a reflective path to the undersurface of the tube and obviously the top of the tube is seeing the sun at whichever angle it's arriving. Mm. And to my delight, uh, when we did the uh, geometry, we could derive uh, more uh, sunlight deriving uh, off the reflectors to the undersurface of the tube than we could get to the top. So effectively it, it the, sounds the, the, there's a path from the sun without moving any of the parts. Yeah, it sounds a similar principle to the parabolic line collectors. So the, um, the problem with a parabola, sorry, and I, and I will momentarily touch on that, a parabola focuses to one point, and therefore a parabolic reflector has to move in one plane in order to keep tracking the sun, either up and down as the sun mm. elevates above the horizon, or from east to west. Whichever way, a parabolic reflector has to rotate uh, through yeah. an arc during the day or, or uh, certainly between the seasons. Gotcha. Because we're using flat reflectors, there's no uh, focal point and therefore uh, the focusing issue uh, disappears. A very quick one on the, the tanks. In your background information, you say you put uh, thermal mass in the tanks, such as gravel, which is a really neat idea. It provides a structural member there too. But then you go on to say you have high-quality stratification of energy stored in the thermal bank, allowing storage of cool water to meet peak chilling demands and warm water. Are you saying you can store both the cool and the warm water in the one tank? It turns out that it's cheaper and easier to store them in separate tanks. We still use stratification, so it's very important um, that you uh, draw water from either the hottest or the coldest yes. place and you return yes. it back to the opposite part of the tank. 
so that our, our cold side tanks are stratified from cold up to uh, tepid and our hot side tanks are stratified from tepid up to very hot. So we use that stratification process. And there are a couple of, uh, there are a couple of implementations where I actually have separate tanks in order to maximise that stratification between tanks. But in general, avoiding remixing was an important element that allowed us to extract as much energy as, as possible from a given body of water. If you've just tuned in, we're talking to Roger Davies, CEO of Fluid Power, and talking about the off-grid performance of Fluid Power's head office building. Lovely to be with you. <laughs> so, Roger, tell us a little bit about your backup systems and how they work. Yes, in a commercial building, it's obviously uh, essential to be at least as reliable as the grid, and in South Australia, that's not so much of a challenge as it used to be, but in general terms, people like to think of, of a system as being 100% reliable. So we have uh, two ways of boosting the performance of the of the system, and as it turns out, we haven't used either of them yet. So in order to augment hot water, if we if we imagine a very long, miserable winter and it's just been cold for weeks and overcast and no sun at all, uh, because the thermal processes are driven by hot water, it's very straightforward to provide a, a gas hot water heater as a backup plan, and that and we estimated that that gas heater might run for 50 hours a year. As it turns out, we, we didn't turn that uh, that heating system on. Um, so that that allows you to back up the uh, thermal part of the system. And for the electrical side, um, there's certainly a break-even point where you can keep adding batteries to accommodate 100 hours a year or 50 or 20 hours a year of, of uh, no power. But at a point, it becomes economic to have a small... Uh, generator system, and it's typically driven either by uh, some uh, liquid fuel, so diesel generators would be common, or it can be a gas-powered uh, generator, so that's a small um, internal combustion engine running on natural gas. And because we've got the battery pack, it's possible to have a very small generator. So in our building, we have a 10 kVA or roughly 10 kilowatt uh, electrical generator that can trickle charge the batteries when they're getting down towards critically low. Again, it turned out that we didn't turn that generator on last winter. So, Roger, to the um, to me, the, the most magical portion of this, you say you can generate electricity um, from this hot water, which you're just storing at, say, 80 degrees, now at, with a steam turbine. So, for me, the only way I know of generating steam from 80 degrees is, is to reduce the pressure. But doing that is counterproductive because the whole idea is you need the, the steam under pressure to drive the turbine. How do you do it? You're, uh, you're exactly correct, and uh, it, is, it is a bit magical. It, uh, it's actually five years of magic hard work is how, how it came about. But we have developed um, an, a method of uh, basically enclosing that hot water in a, in a boiler, and we are able to reduce the pressure of the boiler to below atmospheric pressure, and the steam then, of course, starts to boil off. How do you do that? Does that, um, that take water, energy? Uh, it certainly does. And so any turbine system has pumping losses where you're running various sorts of pumps. An interesting statistic for you, a, um, a nuclear power station uh, typically produces, um, let's say, 100 units of energy by way of electrical energy. 50 of those units go back into pumping fluids around a, a nuclear power station. Mm -hmm. So, so it's, uh, it's pumping losses of 50% of its total electrical production, which is astonishing. Coal-fired power, the pumping losses are much less, of course. So we have, um, we have a, a really uh, quite ingenious method of producing a near vacuum. So minus 13 pressure gauge is um, about a 
one 1.6 psi above an absolute vacuum, mm-hmm. and we can produce that with a, a simple centrifugal pump, the sort of uh, pump that you'd use for your swimming pool, for example, uh, and that's configured, um, and, and this has um, been able to be patented, so it's, it's both novel and inventive. So that centrifugal pump actually operates on the cold side, and we pump uh, the, the cold side water uh, through a condensing uh, device, which is a, a spray condenser the, on the cold side of the turbine, and that back that uh, negative pressure or, or uh, less than atmospheric pressure is then reflected back through the turbine, so that the boiler sees uh, a, a near vacuum that it's pushing this low grade steam into. So it it sounds more like you're you're sucking the turbines to make them work, but I guess by converting to steam, you're then getting the massive volume increase. Is that what happens? It, it's a great thermal question. So in order for uh, water to evaporate into steam, you have to supply it with energy, and we mentioned before it was around 2,200 joules per gram of water. Mm-hmm. So if I wasn't resupplying the hot side, the boiler side, with hot water, that water would very rapidly cool until the two sides were equal in temperature, and then the steam flow would, of course, cease. So what we're doing with the hot side is supplying the energy that allows the water to become uh, vapour, steam instead of water, liquid, and and that energy has to be resupplied continuously in order for there to be a flow of steam through the turbine to the cold side uh, negative uh, you know, uh, condenser side. And so it, it looks like I'm breaking the laws of thermodynamics, but I'm not. Mm, the, uh, you have to continuously resupply thermal energy on the hot side in order that the entire device... Uh, I'm wondering why no one's done, done this before. It's like all good ideas. They were obvious as soon as you pointed them out. And <laughs> until then, they were not, not as obvious. Now, the building that you've done this on is um, a medium-sized office construction. Is your system scalable? I thought initially it would be very difficult to scale down because as you reduce the size of a building, in this case, the surface area becomes relatively much larger than the volume. And it's the same as a, a mouse and an elephant. A mouse has trouble keeping hot and has to keep eating food in order to avoid getting too cold. Uh, whereas an elephant has trouble getting rid of its heat and has these big ears that has to flap around in order to try and radiate heat from the body and so it is with buildings large buildings are very easy to keep warm because they've got a very large internal volume uh, and a lot and a relatively small surface area so my large building runs cooling for about nine months of the year uh, whereas a small building of course in the winter is very difficult to keep warm because uh, it's very easy to get a draft that blows the entire internal thermal air mass out of the building quickly if you don't keep the windows uh, closed and the door you know sealed from draft while I was doing uh, the building process, which, as I said, took about three years altogether, I was modelling in mathematics the size of buildings, and I worked out that we could indeed go down even to very small buildings, and if we insulate them carefully and keep the draft down to a minimum, we can keep very small buildings hot through the winter. Okay. So I've gone on to develop okay. a, an apartment, a 60-square-metre apartment as a sort of minimum size, and from that upwards we can keep a building hot in the winter. Well, we've just run out of time just on that question, unfortunately, because we've got a few more to go. Thank you so much for your time today, Roger. It's been fabulous being able to share some of our tech with the listeners, and I've really enjoyed those challenging questions you've put to me, so thank you. Great. And you can get more information on fluidsolarthermal.com. We've been talking to Roger Davis, CEO of Fluid Power, talking about the off-grid performance of the Fluid Power's head office building. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the climate change solutions think tank Beyond Zero Emissions and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the community radio network. If you want to listen to this show or any of the others we've done, 
You can go to bze.org.au and click on podcasts. If you enjoy the show and would like to donate, go to the BZE website and click on the donate button. Thanks for listening and hope to catch you again next week. Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more. bze.org.au You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.